Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Okay, here he is. Please welcome back Jim Toback. Hi there. Hi. Well, as somebody who's been uh, following your career for a while, your, your presence in this film is really clearly felt. Like, I, I you know, from a bunch of films, we know that you're friends with Mike Tyson. Um, a lot of the, your interests and passions are in this film. Um, and, and this interview, this incredibly intimate interview with Tyson that's the centerpiece of this film, like a series of interviews, I don't think could have happened without your friendship with him. So could you start by talking about that? I mean, definitely. It started um, with uh, this um, conversation we had when I was 19, uh, when he was 19, um, on the set of The Pickup Artist. We walked through Central Park together in a long, ambling conversation about Sex, love, madness, crime, boxing, sports, and death, which are all the things. It sounds like your the typical conversation. With. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think that um, um, we kept up over the years in this very intense way, and uh, there was never a point where um, I felt um, that uh, we wouldn't have a fruitful friendship—not just one that we enjoyed, but mm-hmm. that something wouldn't come of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I used them in black and white, I thought, well, maybe this is the ultimate manifestation. But something about the way he did the scene in the gym made me feel that we could go beyond that. And uh, that's this movie became that extension of that that uh, scene, hmm. where, which was basically a self-reflective, meditative scene, unlike the famous one with Downey and uh, Brooke Shields, which right. was more incendiary, but the one, the, the self-analytical Where they're one. both hitting on him. Yeah, yeah. And, and, he, and he chokes Downey and slaps him and slams him on the ground and calls him a cum drinker. And then in <laughs> Brooke's case, he gets intimidated and, and backs off by yeah. her, her sexual aggression. And, uh, but it was the other scene in the gym where he is really... Um, I don't know what the... I I would say um, completely divided on the subject of murder, um, power of Wu-Tang Clan ass and whether he should kill Alan Houston, his boyhood friend who's about to um, rat on him. And and first he says, yes, if someone's out to destroy you, you have to get him before he gets you. And then says, but are you ready to go to the penitentiary? And I don't think you are. And he says, in effect, don't do it. And then talks about being humiliated in prison himself and strip search and all the rest. And yeah. that, that was, you know, I think the seed of this movie. And that, just not to harp too much on that film, because we're going to talk about this one, but that material in the film, with, um, what was the process like with you and him? Was that him talking? Because it feels so genuine. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, yeah. I, I, half of that movie was written exactly, it was done exactly as written. And half of it was done um, in a way that was... Um, uh, I would say pure, not just improvisation, but invention, because I would give the actors an intention and then just let them invent the dialogue, and all of Mike's dialogue was invented. There's a certain kind of actor um, or non-actor 
where to me it's crazy to write dialogue for them because if you let them go, they're going to give you better dialogue than you're going to write. So how did you set up this film? Like, what did you, what did you and Tyson think? You know, you were doing with this interview. Like when you sat down the first day of shooting, how did you kind of set the, the tone? Um, the the idea was sort of psychoanalytic. It was to be a kind of um, um, voice off camera, um, sort of um, uh, provocative voice. Certainly not to ask questions, but just to set off a monologue and um, let the unconscious come out. Because the whole idea was to look at it as a um, 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 meditation, um, a self-analysis, and um, let the unconscious come out and join the conscious mind in speaking. So I kind of planted myself off camera and um, made sure that he didn't see me at all, just throw out a phrase or two and then let him go as far as he could go with it. And like, how long did it take to get to the point? Let's like one of the striking scenes early on is when he's talking about Cuz D'Amato and he's just choking up, and that's such a strong moment. Well, that 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 vulnerability is what what I think was the inevitable um, was the inevitable um, result of letting him go that way because he's a very sad guy. You know, he's got, got a deeply um, pained, sad nature, and you can feel this aura of sadness around him. So um, not that I was trying to get him to break down, but yeah. I thought if there's ever going to be you know, any kind of honest portrait of him, that's going to have to come through. And of course, it's highly unexpected. That isn't one the way one thinks of, of Mike Tyson, but um, what makes him an interesting person is these endless complexities. Has he... Had he had, has he ever sort of like talked about his childhood like that, or talked about uh, things in this sort of? I I didn't way? I didn't know half of what was in the movie before. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I, I we had never. Um, um, I mean, I knew certain facts, but um, he had never talked about fear eating away at him that way, about being bullied the way he was. I didn't know that he was. Uh, that he had breathing problems, which the first thing I heard um, when I put my earphones on the first morning was... (sighs) 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 (sigh
um, a sound guy in New York, got the whole movie out of sync, which he had never admitted to doing, but he did. And no one could figure out how to get it back in sync. And the chief sound editor of Sound One couldn't do it, and no one could. And it was it was out of sync by progression. It wasn't out of sync, so you could slide it. It was like one frame would be one shot would be two frames out. The next shot would be five frames out. The next shot would be four frames out. So no one knew what to do. And I met this Cuban woman director in the lobby of the Brill Building, and I was talking to her and. And she said, well, you know, there's this young kid who's really great. And I called him in Texas, and he flew up, and he, three months later, he got the movie in sync. <laughs> he still doesn't know how he did it, but anyway, he became a major sound guy. Uh, the very, sort of very close to the opening, we have this kind of kaleidoscopic scene of, of Mike, and he's talking about, uh, he sort of gives us collage, you know, talking about himself, and that kind of sets the tone for the film. How, how did you come to, to that, both you and him, sort of you as a filmmaker? But he seemed to understand that the movie was going to be a set, sort of collage of his, his life. I think he didn't quite know what I was going to do. He, had, yeah. you know, he, for, for, he didn't know what I was going to do stylistically, yeah. certainly, because I didn't even know for sure. You know, I had some vague ideas of what I would do. I knew I would do split screen, screens and multiple voices, but I really didn't have a hang of it yet. And... What I hoped was that um, I would discover along the way, as I did, but he didn't know. So when he saw the movie for the first time, he was shocked. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really he sat there with his legs crossed in the aisle, mm-hmm. um, didn't say a word for five minutes, and then he said, um, "This the, the it's like a Greek tragedy. The only problem is I'm the subject. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it wasn't really until the third time he saw it through that he started to really stop looking at it in almost disbelief about who that is up there. And even the third time, which was at Sundance, he said, um, um, you know, people always would say I was crazy or they were afraid of me. And I said, what are they talking about? Why are they saying that? He's been watching it for the third time tonight. I was scared of the guy up there. What did, what did you make of these moments where the scary parts are the... I'm, I assume you mean the, the, just the mo- moments when he's really out of control. I mean, we see some of that on camera at the press conference, but he uh, talks about blackout moments. And what do you make of those moments? I mean, how do you s- sort of explain that? I think that, um, that um, he has which is clear early in the movie when he talks about, I can't even say it, and then he says, if anyone ever fucked with me again, I would fucking kill him. I think he has a uh, a fear not just of everything around him, and he talks about fear as the almost operational reality in his life, but I think he has a fear of his own rage and a fear of his own homicidal capacity. So, um, you know, someone who is like, and he talks about himself as an extremist, you know, well, um, you know, what does that mean? You can only live on one end or the other. So he's going back and forth between containment, discipline, and even passivity, and then total unleashed uh, uncertainty about what might happen. And there's, you know, a part of the complexity is that he, there's, there is, this, you said vulnerability, there's also a neediness, like a real... You feel not only does he want to, you know, he's open about wanting to having this sexual appetite, but he really also seems to want to be loved. Like he wants, 
Uh, very clearly, no yeah. question about that. He's uh, he's very definitely, um, um, you know, vulnerable to uh, love in general and specific women in particular, yeah. and um, and uh, has. Uh, uh, and speaks about um, his ex-wife, um, Monica, in a very interesting way to say, we made a terrible married couple, but we, are, we make great friends. And I think that's the, that's the one case where he's been able to make sense of the idea of accommodating um, sort of friendship and respect in a tempestuous um, sexual-emotional relationship. You talk, you mentioned this idea of Greek tragedy. You used to teach literature. Like, do you, have, do you look at you know the course of like the arc of his life the sort of rise and fall in a way do you see it that, that is kind of being inevitable like do you see well i mean yeah i mean it, it's like a double greek tragedy because it happened twice in two cycles but it has all the classic elements of 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 starting with nothing um overextending himself extending himself to his maximum capacity and then through hubris bringing about his own destruction and bringing about his own destruction in a way that was entirely avoidable from a rational point of view but not really avoidable in fact inevitable if you look at the nature of personality and of his personality where you actually see the seeds of it both the first time and the second time it happened now, I'm going to open it up. I'm going to ask you one more thing, and then I just want to open it up. But um, I mentioned the Jim Brown book. That book you're writing, the book is as much or even more about yourself as it is about your subject, right. Jim Brown. Right. So you're not you're absent from this film, but you must be thinking about your own interest in, in Tyson. You've been kind of an outsider yourself as an artist. Yeah. So I, how, does it, how does this... What well, do you learn about well, yourself making this? Film? Well, I, I mean, what draws me to him and has drawn me to him over the years is precisely the uh, um, similarities despite the surface differences. I mean, the fact that we've had these very intense, long conversations, not starting when he was 19, but going through the years about all these subjects that are you know, obsessing both of us. Um, and uh, so that it's almost like looking at a version of myself in a totally different format. And I think he looks at me the same way. And he's always said over the years, I can't really talk to anybody else the way I can talk to you because you understand me in a way no one understands me. And I might not be quite so extreme in saying the same thing to him, but I certainly know that I could talk to him in a way that I can talk to very few other people and that literally nothing I say to him is outside his capacity of understanding. Whereas a number of very close friends of mine, I know I can't say things to. I might say them, but I know they're either thinking, Jesus, Jim is really crazy, or they're thinking <laughs> that, uh, that, that what is he talking about, but not just getting it right away. And I say there's almost nothing I've... Uh, said to Mike over the years that's outside his realm of uh, digestion. Okay. Let's, well, let's open it up and take some questions, and um, I'll repeat so everybody can hear. Go ahead. It's funny because I was going to say to you what he just said about the similarities. I've been a big fan of your work. Thank you. Oh, 
good question. Okay, so has Mike Tyson looked at your work, and does he look at things like characters you've created, like Bugsy Siegel? Yeah, Lo- Jimmy Lo- Harvey Keitel's character in Fingers and see a little bit of himself in those Loves, loves Bugsy, loves Fingers, and loves black and white and not just the, uh, the part that he's in. <laughs> and uh, also uh, Two Girls and a Guy and loves Downey and Two Girls and a Guy. No, we, we, you know, he's, he's been um, in his own way probably as, as, uh, as uh, f- uh, big a fan of my own movies as I've been of him as a boxer. Um, the difference is that, um, you know, I look at him when he's boxing, or I looked at him when he was boxing, um, uh, you know, as somebody who's potentially walking into a catastrophe each time. I mean, I mean when you think about what you're doing when you go into the ring, um, it's the only sport in which the goal is to kill the person. I mean, you can say it isn't. And he talks about it as a kind of art, but but an art of utter unleashed brutality and um, where, you know, you you consciously want to destroy the other person. So to make a career out of a sport in which an extremely strong, powerful person is trying to demolish you and harm you is um, sort of different from any other area of life. And, you it's know. just in a more extreme version. Like I, I, I just, you know, look, looking at your movie, When Will I Be Loved, which is not about boxing, but every scene in that film is like a fight between two people. Absolutely. It's psycho- it's, it's, it is. Sexual it's a, or psychological. It is. And, and language is the weapon rather than, in most of those cases, the language is the w- weapon rather than punching. Yeah. And, of course, language can be a very powerful and destructive weapon as well. But um, I would rather be... Um, uh, whipped linguistically than physically any day of the week. Although the Jim Brown book ends with you beating up. Well, I hit him <laughs> once. It was just one clean shot. Probably, you know, in my fairly... Jim Brown beating up a, yeah, my fa- yeah. My, oh, yeah, that would not happen. My fairly limited pugilistic experience, <laughs> that was the, the cleanest, most lethal punch I ever threw. Um, just, the, just the right timing and I remember the sound so I ended the book with it I thought well you know listen I'm not going to have this uh, I'm not going to be able to talk about having done this again so I may as well put it at the end of the book okay anything else go ahead yeah um, I saw uh, in a lot of the movie I saw Teddy Atlas in a lot uh, my question is if you consider coaching him at any point to talk to him about Tyson because they, he's a local guy and they've got a lot of well, I, I didn't. I decided to make this movie a self-portrait, very um, definitely. I wanted it to be a movie about Mike in his own words. And once you open up um, the forum to anyone else, the it the it's diluted. And um, you know, it's as if you want you know, like you have a, por- a self-portrait of Gauguin, but. Before you're finished, you ask um, you ask someone uh, who uh, knew him when he was a stockbroker to just do his ear, and then you ask Van Gogh to paint his nose, and then you you know, and after a while, you just have a hodgepodge. So I wanted just to get Tyson in his own words, and um, 
particularly because everybody who talks about Tyson who knew him has a very definite agenda. I mean, in many cases, it's people who are extremely unhappy that they weren't brought along in his life when he became successful. There are a whole group of people who were part of Cuss's world whom he did not carry on with him, uh, who wanted to be carried on. And uh, in the case of Teddy Atlas, who... uh, who left Cusses because he uh, he didn't feel that Cuss was being harsh enough with Mike, and um, that uh, so I just that was like a not even a temptation from the beginning. I just viewed it as a movie that would be uh, a self portrait of Tyson, filtered through my own style, but basically yeah. um, in his own words. Right here. First of all. Uh, Jerry Stahl, I think, says hello. I don't know. Oh, I, I, I don't know, but Ben Stiller told me that he was a big Fingers fanatic, and and I loved the, 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 the movie. I thought that was a phenomenal, fascinating portrayal of a, of a, of a Dostoevskian and Tysonian figure. This is, wait, which film? Permanent. Permanent. Permanent Midnight. This yeah. Jerry Stahl, the film yeah. director who did it. Yeah. He was something like this character. Yeah. Okay. And some of the early footage was from a documentary. Well, so they, there, there, was, there were several documentaries made which use the same footage because there is only a limited amount of footage um, of Mike when he was young. For instance, everything with Cuss was shot by a German documentarian um, and who was doing a documentary about Cuss. And, um, and uh, he was told by Cuss... When he was, when he arrived in the Catskills, you should concentrate on that kid, Mike Tyson, because he's going to be champion. He's the best fighter I've ever had. So the only reason there's as much footage as there is of Mike there is that this guy, whose last name is Martin, um, photographed Tyson more than he would have otherwise in this documentary he did about Cuss. And then anyone who's done anything on Tyson, obviously you want to get whatever you can at Cuss. So we're all, you know, in terms of that footage, you're working from the same pool of limited footage that's available. Um, this movie, it's an hour and a half, it's an hour and eight minutes of the new stuff on Mike, and then the rest is fight footage and that. Okay, so the, yeah, you always thought Tyson was a total monster, well, like a, as a, opposed, to opposed to Ali. Yeah. And how did this film make you feel? Yeah. Totally, you know, so complicated, so complex. Yeah. And even your 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 handout called him complex, and I thought, uh oh, you know, this is yeah, complex. But I want to skip to the end. I mean, at the end, he's almost an angel. He's like in the rooms. He's well, he's you know he's now in uh, the 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 metaphor I keep using is just like a guy who is in the middle of an earthquake and now there's he's surrounded by rubble and he's sort of surveying the remains of this structure that used to be there and kind of wondering what to do next and what's possible and I think the movie doesn't really leave you with any lead you to any conclusion it just says. 
the past is history, the future is a mystery. And uh, I mean, it's true of everybody to a degree, but I think it's true of Tyson to a heightened degree. Mm-hmm. Okay, over here. No, I wanted to use one moment of true flip-out rage in one press conference and have that kind of serve as the 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 torchbearer for that part of his personality. And I used what I considered to be the most extreme one was when he totally flips out on that guy and says, you know, because the guy yells out, you belong in a straitjacket. And then he says, your mother belongs in a straitjacket. And then launches into that prison trash talk about, you know, I'll fuck you till you love me, faggot, and all the rest (laughs) of that shit. And I thought, well, this is the ultimate in that, you know, in that kind of... um, Outburst, which and it shows uh, he always wants to be loved, right? Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> However, he can. Get right. <laughs> and uh, I, I, you know, also um, you deal with the the rape. I mean, because of the type of film you make, you, you're, you're not investigating sort of the truth or what you know did it or did it not happen with the rape, but you're revealing this um, issue about trust. Um, which you set up with the with uh, you know earlier um, footage of him talking about who, how we can't trust anybody. That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean the 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 whole rape thing. You know, um, obviously, to me, there's no question that he didn't do it. You know, it's uh, it's over the years. He's told me over and over again. I mean, you can't bring up the word or anything remotely close to it without his going off you know and he says it it, he can't let go of it because which if you think about it if you know you haven't done something and you're in this horrifying three-year nightmare of incarceration for something you didn't do how do you ever get over that and one of the interesting things he says that uh, about that afterwards that those tattoos you know which that he hated america he wanted because that was the american criminal justice system that put him there you know and uh uh the um the feeling that uh that uh he had his the turning point in his life was something that happened not because of something he'd done but because something he was wrongly convicted of um and that was the real turning point in his life more than being heavyweight champion more than anything because that's what snapped him that's what moved him mm-hmm. into uh, multiple voices and an understanding of insanity and an actual over, being overtaken by insanity and you know when I took that walk with him when I was 19 I told him I'd flipped out on LSD when I was 19 and being insane for eight days and he was obsessed what do you mean by insanity what do you mean loss of self what do you mean and uh, you can't really explain it to somebody who hasn't experienced it whether it's from LSD or not and when he was in prison he experienced it the difference is that he didn't get an intravenous antidote as I did eight days in to end it. He basically has had to carry it through. And, you know, it's uh, the way Robert Lowell had to carry it through, the way Theodore Rifke had to carry it through, the way John Berryman had to carry it through, the way a lot of people have to carry it through. And that's, you know, it's uh, life is nothing like what it has been before once you've had that happen. And if, it, if it's ongoing, it's... Uh, 
you try to make sense of where did this start and what provoked it and how did I ha- how did this happen? And usually there isn't an answer. Here there was a very clear answer, which was being locked up in a little cell for yeah. uh, three years. Yeah. Okay, let's take a few more over here. Uh, so yeah, but uh, first part about the psychological aspect of boxing—it's this incredible physical struggle. But you saw this whole well, that's you know, Customato, and he says in, in, instilled in him this idea that no matter how strong you are, um, the actual um, the actual realm of the fighter is mental and psychological. And what I find fascinating is the way he talks about infecting his opponent with his fear through his eyes and almost staring his terror into the other person so that the other person becomes so terrified that he can't even stand up. And you see in two of his fights, yeah. the fighter's actually going down and out out of fear, not from being hit. Michael One was Spinks. Michael Spinks, yeah. who literally collapsed, and you can see just went into the ring praying that he would neither be killed nor put in a wheelchair permanently. <laughs> just give me my $20 million and let me get out of here and quit boxing, which is what happened. Uh, and the other one was Bruce Selden, who Mike, the ultimate indignity, which he didn't do intentionally, mispronounces his name as Bruce Sheldon. But um, Bruce Selden was the guy who knocked out in the first round to regain the title when he got out of prison. Uh, you can see a punch that barely grazes Selden, and he goes down on his face and doesn't get up. Yeah. And that's not, it's, uh, it's from fear. It's, uh, it's fear is, uh, you know, the, the thing that Mike did was he always found a way of getting rid of his own fear by putting it onto the other. By the way, Floyd Patterson, who was Cuss's champion also before right. Mike, not nearly as good a one, but heavyweight champion, he had that fear of Sonny Liston. And there was that... the. Uh, the Liston fight, we fought him twice, but one of the fights, first round knockout, um, the, you look at the punch, and it's not like the Liston-Ali fight where the uh, first round knockout there, Liston took a dive because there'd been a fuck up in the first fight. We were supposed to go a certain amount of rounds, and he didn't, so he, they told him, next fight, you go down the first time you hit, so he gets hit by a simple jab, and for the first time in his life, he's knocked down by it. But the, uh, the, the Patterson fight was not a... A, it was a barely a punch, but Patterson was so terrified he blacked out from fear before the fight started. It's the same kind of language that Bobby Fischer used to talk in playing chess about just destroying the opponent. Yes, All psychological. Absolutely. He just wanted to like not just win the game, but like real, literally destroy. Yeah, know? and you and you and you and you you see that in in linguistic disputes sometimes in debates. You see it in physical combat, and you see it in sports all the time. You see it in tennis. One player just loses it all together. You know what's fascinating to me is not that this isn't, but when you see it in a team sport, sometimes you see a whole team collapse, and uh, <laughs> it's as if the whole team gets infected right. by that fear, and they yeah, just well, fall apart. You know, we're Knicks fans, so we know about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, go ahead. Absolutely. Oh, is he still involved with the Muslim he, religion? And the second question is, nowadays, being that his boxing career is over, what is he doing to okay, what will he, yeah, what will he do next to pay the bills? The, the, the Muslim question, he definitely considers himself to be a Muslim and takes it seriously. I don't know how, um, what's the right word? I don't know how uh, observant he is on a regular basis, but he identifies himself as a Muslim. Um, he is, uh, you know, making appearances, but the biggest source of money is going to be this game, kind of Wii-type game, that uh, fantasy fight game that he and Ali are coming out with together. And uh, that's going to be, I think, sort of his biggest hope for financial regeneration, although he's certainly not going back to three or four hundred million. Those days are past, although he thinks, obviously, still in those same terms. And it's always very funny to me when he says he got awarded some small amount of 30, 20, 30, some small amount of money because he still, even though he doesn't have that kind of money anymore or remotely like it, his unit is still a hundred million. It's like there's zero, there's a hundred million, there's two hundred million, there's three hundred million, you know. <laughs> and he's in the like low, you know, and under 50, so so it's like, uh, you know, and also, he's in, as he puts it, he's an extremist, so money's never going to stay in his pocket anyway. Okay, we'll just take time for one more. Go ahead. Okay, just in terms of rights, how did you manage getting rights to the... Well, we had 30 hours of original footage. Um, and, uh, and the rights question, I ignored all financial issues and just did what I wanted to do and then figured out how much I was going to owe. And what happened as a result was that um, I had financed the most of the movie. I put up... Um, two million um, and got it finished basically without rights uh, and without some post production. Um, then I investigated how much it was going to cost to get all the rights and realized that I was going to be about nine hundred thousand short to finish the movie. And uh, so I took five hundred thousand from one guy, who I have to say. This is not somebody I wish to spend another two seconds with as long as I'm on this planet. Let me, let me leave it at that. Um, and then the last money came from Carmelo Anthony, who um, is a star with the Denver Nuggets. And we needed that money to avoid having, oh, there would have been all kinds of problems. And Carmelo happened to see the movie and went crazy and said he, everybody should see this movie. And I went, ah. So the Tyson's manager said, well, you know, if you have some money you want to invest, we'll make you a partner. And he said, sure. And that's, that, that's what enabled us to get through. But I didn't want to worry about money in terms of making decisions. So I just put in everything I wanted. But it was significant, particularly fight footage belonging to both ESPN and HBO was a pretty substantial figure. 
You have to, you have to get, yeah, you have to, most of the other stuff you had to pay something, but it was all basically manageable. There was one funny thing at Customato, the, the German director I mentioned, that, you know, everyone who wants to do anything on Tyson, you're going to want to get that footage, and he can pretty much charge what he wants if you really want it. So, uh, but he gave me a really good deal, and he said it turned out that um, a girlfriend of mine in high school was his ex-wife whom he had a daughter with. So he said he'd give me a break. So I got lucky in that. Wait, did you? Uh, there was. Okay, yeah, I couldn't. There's a blind spot because of the spotlight. But you, this, I'll give you the last question if you want to still ask it. I guess, yeah, and what's the film therapeutic for him? I, absolutely. I, I mean, I looked at it as a kind of psychoanalytic session. I really, I, I, I thought of it as like I would be a voice off camera more than a presence on the set, just kind of introducing him to certain themes and letting him just go. Because what, what you get then is the unconscious coming out. I did not want a kind of just a rational exchange where he's only saying what he's consciously wanting to say, but rather letting voices, which are close to the surface in his case anyway, letting them come out and and identify and define himself without uh, restraint and without inhibition and without censorship and then worry about what to use and what not to use when editing. Okay, well, as a psychiatrist says, I'm afraid our time is up. So um, we'll see you next time. Make another movie. <laughs> Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.